Malachi chapter 3, we'll begin at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And we now call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. This is the word of God. Thank you. Join me in praying together as we come before the word of our God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We are reminded from the book of Hebrews that it is a double-edged sword, that there are no parts of it that are dull, that it is your divinely inspired and breathed out word that penetrates our hearts and our souls, our very beings to the very depth of our being. And exposes, Father, all of the ways in which sin remains in our lives. 
we ask, Holy Spirit, that the Word of God would do this this morning. That it would show us ways in which we continue to need to grow. And it, it would show us sin that we continue to need to mortify and put to death. And that it would wield the power of God in our lives to continue to change us and transform us by the renewing of our minds. So Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of our heart today be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that as Michael read those words from chapter 3 of the book of Malachi, that the words, especially in verse 14, where God indicts His people this way, He says, you have said it is vain to serve God. I hope those words strike you this morning. That's at the very heart of what God was exposing in the hearts and in the lives of His people, that that by way of the course of their lives and their attitudes, the disposition of their hearts, they were effectively saying to God, it's vain to serve Him. It doesn't profit us anything to serve Him. That's a very striking statement, isn't it? This morning we're taking a step back from the book of Acts so that we can meditate together on the book of Malachi, where there are some truths that are revealed that are tremendously convicting and challenging and also tremendously encouraging for our lives as God's people. In 1960, C.S. Lewis wrote a collection of reflections on grief and suffering and loss after he suffered the loss of his wife to cancer. And that work was called A Grief Observed. And at one point in that little collection of his meditations on the pain that was, that was roiling around in his heart, C.S. Lewis admits that in the midst of his pain, his heart was tempted to doubt God. Not to doubt the being of God. Not to doubt the existence of God. He was tempted to doubt God's goodness. Because the pain that he was experiencing, the loss that he had experienced, felt so bad that he was tempted to doubt whether God was good. Here's what he wrote in that work. He says, It is not that I think I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. Rather it is, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. As if all along he had been only deceived into thinking that God was good and faithful and just. Now, he never actually reached that conclusion that God is not good. He never fully yielded to the temptation to believe dreadful things about God. But in the midst of his pain, he, he wrestled against that temptation that, that maybe many, many Christians have to wrestle against at some point in our lives when the pressure is on, when the pain is, 
is, is excruciating in our lives. Do you ever feel tempted to doubt in those moments that God is good? So today, this is what I want us to try to glean together from the book of Malachi. Because Malachi is a book that was written to a people that were living under immense pressure and agonizing pain. People who had started to yield to this temptation to to say dreadful things, as C.S. Lewis said, about their God. And what I want for us this morning as God's people is to be able to honestly evaluate our own hearts, our own attitudes, our own minds, to, to discern if and when we become confronted with that kind of temptation to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of our God in our own times of pressure and affliction so that we can know how to deal with that temptation and not yield to it, not succumb to it, and, and start thinking dreadful things about our God. Who, who is always good. He's never not good, even though sometimes we may be tempted to doubt that. So Malachi was a prophet. He prophesied the Word of God during a time that's probably best described as a time of uh, waiting. Most of the other Old Testament prophets were, were writing their prophecies during times when big, significant historical events were actually happening, like the exile in Babylon, or the return from that exile, which is what we were reading about in the book of Nehemiah, back when they came back to their homeland and and were able to rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. But in Malachi's day, all of those events had, had come and gone. In Malachi's day, over 170 years had passed since the Babylonians had come and started to deport the people of Jerusalem and Judah into captivity in Babylon. It's been about 150 years since the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Babylonians and the whole city was torn down as we read about in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's writings. The temple was destroyed. The people of the city were decimated. The whole city was torn down stone by stone and the ruins were burned. That's that's long past in Malachi's day. In Malachi's day, about 80 years have passed since Cyrus had decreed that the people could return to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity and rebuild the walls and build a new temple. It had taken a long time for the new temple to get built with all of the struggles and hardships that they'd had to endure settling back into Jerusalem after, after it had been completely ruined and they'd been gone for so long. But they finally did get that new temple built. But that's been, again, in Malachi's day about 70 years ago now. Back in the days when the people had first returned from captivity, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah had indicated that Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the priest were God's chosen men to usher in a new age for the people of God. But now all this time's gone by in Malachi's day and, and, and Zerubbabel's dead, Joshua's dead. And even though this new temple that they've built is is finished and it's standing there, the, the presence of God's glory 
in the Holy of Holies had never ever returned. The Shekinah glory in the old temple had departed way back in Ezekiel's day because of all the idolatry and corruption and immorality that was, that was festering in, in that old temple. But in Ezekiel chapter 43, God had promised that His glory would return to His holy temple. And that when it did, the, the presence of the glory of the Lord would come rushing in with the sound of many waters, and then the whole earth would begin to shine with God's glory. And, and, and he said that the people of God, when that happened, would know that His glory had returned. But in Malachi's day, it hadn't happened. It's been, it's been, it's been 60 or more years after this new temple has been built, and, and none of that had happened. There's no sound of rushing waters. There's, there's no radiance of heaven to indicate that the presence of God's glory had returned because it hadn't. They've got this new temple, but the Holy of Holies just sat empty. And it would be that way for the next 400 years. In Malachi's day, there were no, no spectacular signs and wonders going on like there were in the, in the days of old with Elijah and Elisha. Now Judah is no longer this powerful world presence that it used to be with, with Jerusalem as the shining capital city like in Solomon's days that was set apart from all the other nations. It was, a, it was kind of, the situation in Malachi's day was kind of pathetic. It was pretty, everything was shabby compared to the generations of their fathers. The population had been decimated and was dwindling. The economy was meager and non-existent. The city was, the, the walls were just kind of patched up. The, the temple that they did rebuild was nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. It was kind of this flimsy wooden thing that just paled in comparison to the first one. And, and again, it sat empty of God's presence. They, they performed worship there. They they performed sacrifices and ceremonies, but, but they didn't do it with any kind of real enthusiasm or zeal in their hearts. So, physically, spiritually, socially, economically, the wind was just kind of whistling through this quiet, lonely, dilapidated city of Jerusalem now in the days of Malachi. And whole generations were, were dying without ever seeing the culmination of the promises of God realized. And, and in the midst of that sea, people were starting to lose their faith. People were starting to doubt God's goodness. They were asking questions like, well, where is He? Where, he, he promised to come back, but he's, where's the God of our fathers? And they were starting literally to say things like, does it, I mean, does it really matter if we serve Him or not? What good is it doing us? Is it vain to serve God? So, this is what I want us to be honest about in our own hearts today. Have there been times like that? When, as God's children, when things are painful, 
when things are kind of the opposite of what we've wanted and hoped they would be, what, when, when we've been praying and praying and, and, and we don't seem to be getting what we're asking for, and when there's disappointments and, and agonies that seem like they're just never ending, and, and when we can't see any earthly reason whatsoever why things need to be the way that they are, why? Why does this have to be the way that my life is? What possible good can be coming from any of this? Times when we're waiting, looking for God's answers, and it seems like no answers are coming. And so, do you feel sometimes the temptation in your own heart to say, well, where are you, God? Is believing in you, is serving you, really getting me anywhere in my life? Have you ever felt tempted to say that, like C.S. Lewis was tempted to say? Yeah, I believe that God exists, but, but sometimes I wonder if He's good. Sometimes I wonder if He's faithful, after all. Well, the book of Malachi is about a, a nation of people who felt like that. Covenant people who felt like that and whose hearts were asking those kinds of questions and who had yielded and succumbed to that temptation and actually started to say the dreadful things about God that C.S. Lewis was tempted to say in the hour of his greatest grief. Malachi is a book about how God responds to that, which you can imagine isn't altogether happy. But praise God, He is merciful and He is patient with His people in their weakness, in our weakness. And in Malachi, God shows us what to do when we are wrestling with the temptation to doubt God or even to say dreadful things about our God. So, knowing now a little bit about what was going on in their world when God gave the prophecy through Malachi to His people, let's look actually at the dreadful things that their hearts and attitudes and lives were saying to God. And, and how God responded and how He shows us where to go when we're tempted to be in that place ourselves. We're going we're gonna to kind of fly over this book today. It's only four chapters. We can't cover everything. There's no way we could, honestly, in one week. There are all kinds of important themes in the book of Malachi about God's faithfulness and about the people's specific forms of sinfulness that we could dig out, and, and we'd have to spend lots of weeks in this book, but we're not going to do that. We're going to fly over it with one specific goal in mind of seeing this tendency to question the goodness and the faithfulness of God when times are hard, and what to do when we find our hearts being tempted in that way and maybe even slipping into that temptation. So, along those lines, and turn all the way back to Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to go chapter by chapter here and, and see a few things. Along these lines, there's a particular phrase that runs throughout this prophecy. And you heard it as Michael was reading chapter 3. And this phrase clues us in to the specific ways in which the people's hearts were doubting their God. And that little phrase is this. It's the, it's the phrase, but you say. And usually the way that that comes into play in this book is, is this way, that God is looking at the hearts of His people and He's saying to them that the condition of their hearts, that their attitudes, 
that the, that the tenor of their lives is saying dreadful things about the character of God, even if they're not actually vocalizing with words anything bad about Him. So, so He accuses them of saying it, and then they ask, well, how have we said that? And that's where this little phrase, but you say, that's where this comes in. For example, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. God is accusing the priests of despising His name. And he says, but you say, priests, how have we despised your name? So you see what's going on here? God is diagnosing their attitudes, their hearts, and boiling it all down to despising his name. But they, see, they would never actually want to say with, with words, God, we despise your name. So they're like, we've never done that. How, how have we done that? We've never said that, see? Because they're focusing on the outside of the cup. But God's not looking on the outside. He's looking on the inside. Because God sees the heart. So they say, right? But you say, how have we despised your name? It's, it's a kind of denial. See, it's a defensive response. See, they're not willing to accept God's rebuke and His diagnosis of, of their inner true hearts. So they challenge God. No, God, we've never despised your name. They mean outwardly. And then God comes back and answers the challenge and proves his case and shows how on the inside, their attitudes which have led to certain actions really do amount to their despising his name. And that's the pattern all throughout the book of Malachi. God indicts their hearts And then they challenge the indictment by pointing to the outside of the cup. And then God proves that he's right by pointing to the inside and showing that the way that they're living their lives is coming out of this spiritual condition that he's diagnosed and that he's indicted them for. So notice this. Notice that at the very beginning of the prophecy here in chapter 1, and look way up in verse 2 of chapter 1, the very first time where you see that phrase, but you say... This time, God's not indicting them, but they end up indicting themselves. And this is the first dreadful thing that the covenant people of God say about their God. The first way in which they doubt Him is is this. God says, verse 2, about Himself this time, right? Not Not about them. He says, I have loved you, but you say, How have you loved us? Wow, right? (laughs) The Almighty, Eternal God who is unchangeably love says, I have loved you. And the people actually are in their hearts going, what? Are you kidding me? They're going, look at my life, God. How can you say you've loved me? When this is my lot. Again, God intends His Word to be convicting and comforting, so He's going to break us down and build us up. In the quiet of your heart and in the privacy of your own mind, be honest. Have you ever thought that way towards God? Just look at my life. God, look what's happened to me. Look what keeps happening to me. 
Are you kidding? How should I believe that you've loved me when this is all I've got? That's what the people of Judah were saying to God in their hearts. Even if they never vocalized the words, that's what their hearts were saying in the, in the days of Malachi, and that's what their lives were saying. You haven't loved me, so I don't trust you, so I'm going to do it my way. How have you loved us, God? And God's answer is this, right? How have I loved you? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, and yet I loved Jacob. But Esau I hated. And I have laid waste Esau's hill country and left his heritage to to jackals of the desert. You know what he's referring to? You know the story of Jacob and Esau from Genesis 25? Both of them were the sons of Isaac. Isaac was the promised son to Abraham and Sarah. So Jacob and Esau were Isaac's twin sons. They were both together in their mother's womb at the same time. Esau was the one who came out of the womb first, right? But his little brother Jacob wasn't far behind. In fact, when Jacob came out, he was actually holding on to Esau's heel, literally. Already from birth, trying to pull him back and get ahead of his big brother. And so you know that, that you know the rest of the story and that that characterizes the rest of the story, right? Esau technically is the firstborn, and so he's the one who's entitled to the birthright. But what did Jacob do? He took advantage of his brother one day when he came home from hunting and he was famished and he was weakened. And Jacob bought the birthright by by giving his brother a bowl of stew. And then later in Genesis 27, Jacob deceived his old, blind, dying father into thinking that he was Esau. And, And so Jacob took his father's blessing for himself. That's I mean, that's who Jacob was. He was not a good guy. He was a rotten guy. His name actually means usurper. It means in Hebrew, heel grabber. The one who's trying to get ahead of his brother. And who cheated and who lied in order to do it. And yet, it was Jacob and not Esau whose name was changed by God to Israel. Right? It was Jacob, not Esau, through whom the line of of the promise that would lead to the Messiah would come. How does that make sense? Why Why did God pick Jacob? It doesn't add up, right, according to human accounting. And that's exactly the point, right? How have you loved us, God? Answer, isn't Esau Jacob's brother, and yet I have loved Jacob. In other words, didn't Esau have every bit as much of a right, humanly speaking, to be chosen as you have, as the descendants of Jacob? Wasn't Jacob also Isaac's son? Wasn't he, wasn't he the twin? Wasn't he in the or wasn't Esau also Jacob's twin in the same womb as Jacob? Wasn't he actually born first? And yet I chose you, God says. You see the point? The point is, humanly speaking, both Jacob and Esau had an equal claim to God's choosing them because in God's economy, 
Neither of them had any claim whatsoever. Neither of them had anything in them that constrained God, that, that, that obligated God to love them, to choose them, because both of them were fallen sinners like all of us who only deserved God's judgment. And so the point is, God loved Jacob unconditionally. That's what it means, that he loved Jacob. It means he loved Jacob despite Jacob. He loved Jacob despite the fact that there was nothing in Jacob that obligated God to love him or to choose him. And see, that's what God's love is, right? We'll never ever be able to understand, let alone experience, the fullness and the depth and the breadth and the the richness and the lavishness of the love of God until we grasp what it means to be loved freely by God. To not have to earn it. That when we didn't deserve it, God loved us in spite of ourselves. And the people in Malachi's day were doubting God's love for them because they didn't like their circumstances. Because they felt like what God had given them was worse than what they deserved, they thought. Because they had forgotten, as sinners, what they really deserve from the Holy God. And they forgot that life itself is a gift from God that is given unconditionally, that is given absolutely freely. Now, don't we doubt His love for us sometimes when we're not getting what we want, what we think we deserve and are owed, what we think God is obligated to do for us? When we experience pain and and hardship, what do we do? We tend, as human beings and as people who have sin remaining in us, we tend to turn inward when we're going through hard things. We tend to become focused on and, and mostly concerned about us and ourselves. And when we do that, what we find is this, we find this this old disposition of our flesh and this this old tendency to to idolize ourselves, to make what we want the most important thing in the universe. And then what we do is we imagine that God exists to give us what we want, that that's His role, to sort of be our servant, to sort of be our butler and make sure we have all the good things that we think we deserve. And if He doesn't, then in our hearts we're tempted to accuse Him, maybe not with actual words, but in our hearts we tend to want to accuse Him of not being loving towards us. And of course, the way to combat that temptation is is to stop looking at ourselves and to start looking at Him who is love and to remember the great unconditional love of God towards us in that while we were still sinners, He sent Christ Jesus to die for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Now, flip over to chapter 2 and look at verse 6 where God, following right on the heels of the people doubting His love for them, exposes a second way in which the people had doubted him. 
He's focusing here on the priests. The priests are the ones who were responsible for the worship that went on in the temple. And he says to the priests, You have despised my name. But they say, at the end of verse 6, How have we despised your name? There's the challenge, right? There's the, the sort of defensive denial. We haven't, we haven't done that. We've never said that. We've never despised your name. So God makes the case. Verse 7. Here's how you've despised my name. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Here's what's going on. The law of God was that you couldn't offer an animal for sacrifice in the temple that was blind, that was lame, that was sick, that was impure. Only healthy, unblemished animals could be, could be offered to God. Only the best of the flock could be offered to God. Why? Because He's God. Because He's always worthy of the best, is He not? Because offering him anything less than the best, offering him something impure, offering him something that was was blemished, was a denial of his holiness, his purity, his worthiness. So what the people were doing, what the priests were doing, was, was keeping the best back for themselves and giving God the leftovers. The priests were doing this. And by doing it, they were betraying that in their hearts, they didn't really think that God was worthy of such a costly worship. I mean, God, we're worshiping you, but does it really have to cost so much? (laughs) Do we really have to give up so much for you, God? It's an onerous burden to worship you, God. Sounds hideous, right? But... (laughs) Honestly, maybe in our hearts we ask that kind of question. Do I really have to count this cost, God? Do I really have to bear up this cross, God? Does following you, does walking by faith really have to be like like this? And so see, God kind of peels it back and, and exposes that, that underneath all those kinds of questions is this, is this question, God, are you really worth it? And that's, that's what God says these priests are really asking when they're unwilling to offer up the costly sacrifices. They're despising His name. They're despising Him. Down in verse 13 of chapter 2, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. God says, I am worthy. And yet you don't esteem me as worthy. And and he's right, isn't he? He's worthy. Because of who he is. Because of his holy nature. And because of what he does. 
in maintaining justice and in pouring out mercy and love towards us. He's worthy of any cost, isn't he? And then, still in chapter 2, then God exposes that the people also doubt his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to them. In chapter 2 now, God's main complaint against the people is that they've become unfaithful in their own lives to, to their marriage vows. That's the outward sin that God is dealing with in Malachi chapter 2. They've broken their covenant marriage vows with their wives. They've been adulterous. They've been unfaithful. The, the men had forsaken their wives. They've been divorcing their wives for any reason that they wanted. I just don't like her anymore. She doesn't look as good as she used to. Whatever. They just, they're just divorcing them. Forsaking them. Taking other wives. Even unbelieving wives. Pagan wives. But see, what God is saying ultimately is what was, what was behind that unfaithfulness on their part was a fundamental sinful doubt in their hearts of God's unfaithfulness or God's faithfulness rather to them. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. God says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? You see the link God's making between His faithfulness to us and our faithfulness to one another? The faithfulness of God should beget the faithfulness of His people. But in Malachi's day, they doubted his faithfulness to them, and so they became unfaithful themselves. In essence, what they were doing is saying, well, God's not keeping his promises to us. God's not doing what he said he would do. So why should we be expected to keep our promises? He hasn't kept his covenant. Why should we keep ours? That's what's going on in in chapter 2. That's the attitude in the hearts of the people. Because again, they've become self-focused. And so much so that they thought that God had become slack in keeping His promises to them. And so they gave themselves permission to become slack in keeping their promises. They became slack in living in holiness and in obedience and faithfulness to their wives. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem because Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So may the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob or from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do is this, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. They've doubted his love. They've doubted his worthiness. They've doubted his faithfulness. They've become unfaithful themselves as a result. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, 
they also doubt God's justice. And God says to them, verse 17 there, you, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, well, how have we wearied him? Answer, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so again, you can see where their hearts are going, right? They're, they're looking at their condition. They're looking at the situation around them. They're looking at the circumstances in their world. And then they're looking at their neighbors, the unbelievers, the ones who don't worship God, the pagans. And they're going, you know what? They're better off than we are. And that's not fair. God's not just. Those guys are doing all kinds of evil. Those guys are worshiping false gods and idols. Those gods are just wantonly living in, in sin and immorality and nothing bad's happening to them. They've got it way better than we do. I mean, here we are worshiping in the temple, waiting for God to make good on His promises, and we've got nothing to show for it. The sinners out there, the pagans over the hill there, are, are better off than we are. This just isn't fair. God, God's not just. Ever felt that way? Ever said in the, in the secrecy of your own heart, you know what, God, I'm doing all the right stuff here. I should be getting better than, than this lot of life from you. Asaph faced that temptation, didn't he, in Psalm 73? looking at all the people around him in the world, all the sinners who didn't give a care to worshiping God at all and saying, they've got more money than me. They've got better food than me. They're fatter than me because they're healthier than me because they're eating better than me. Their lives are better than my life is and that's not fair. Asaph, right? His foot had almost slipped, he says in Psalm 73. Because he was tempted to doubt God. Until what? Until he went into the temple and beheld the glory of the Lord and worshipped and remembered that because he has God, because Asaph has God, he has infinitely more than anyone has who doesn't have God, even if they have everything in this world. He took his eyes off of here and put them on there and that glory and realized the Lord is my portion. The Lord is the strength of my heart and life. His nearness is my good. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And there is absolutely nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Let me suffer. Even if my flesh and my heart should fail, God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. The nearness of God is my good. Again, when we suffer, all of us, we tend to turn inward on ourselves. And when we do that, what we find in ourselves is all of this sort of filthy, nasty, old, habitual, fleshly garbage of our sin. And selfishness, pride, greed, bitterness, anger, discontentment. And not only that, when we, when we turn inwards, our eyes are off of His glory. Our eyes are off of Him. 
Our focus is on self, not God. And when we lose sight of the pricelessness of His glory and the beauty of His holiness, we become tempted to think that that He's not just. That He's not being fair for letting us suffer in the ways that we are. And when we doubt Him, when we doubt His love for us and His worthiness and His faithfulness and His justice in everything that He sovereignly decrees for our lives, then we start the next step to doubt the benefit of serving Him. That's where all of this leads. So, chapter 3 now of the book of Malachi, and look at verse 13. And this is where Michael was reading. God says to the people, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, well, how have we spoken against you? We haven't done that. Answer, you have said. Your hearts are screaming. The tenor of your lives are crying out. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What is it profit? does me no good. It doesn't, it doesn't pay off to serve God. That's what the tenor of their lives was saying. It's not worth it. In verse 15 they say, And now we call the arrogant blessed. When we're in that situation, when we're in that place of saying it doesn't do any good to serve God, then, then that's when we start to think, you know what, the, the arrogant ones are the blessed ones, so we're going to become like them. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They get away with it. Being arrogant is what pays, not humility. Doing what we want is what pays, not doing what God wants, not doing things His way. Evildoers prosper. They get away with whatever they want. Now, our Our hearts never do that, right? We never go there. Our lives never say that kind of thing, right? Our choices, our behaviors never proclaim that it is vain to serve God, right? Listen. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We all have sin that remains in our hearts and our lives, all of us, right? And every time we sin, every time we sin, we say to God, at least in that moment, in that choice, to yield to temptation and to sin in whatever way we do, we're saying to Him, it's vain to serve you. It doesn't do me any good to do it your way, so I have to do it my way, God. Because I'm going to get more. I'm going to get better if I do it my way than I'll get from you doing it your way. What's the profit of keeping your charge? It's not worth it, God. That's what we say every time we sin. And every time our lives say that to Him, it's because we doubt Him. We don't doubt He exists. But we do doubt if He really loves us. We do doubt if He's really worthy of our submission and our obedience and our worship. We do doubt that He's truly faithful to us. That in everything that He ordains for our lives, He's really just and good And we tend to doubt Him. 
when we succumb to the temptation in the times that are toughest for us, in the most excruciating times, in the most, in the most painful times, in the times of the most crushing pressure, when it seems like the, the suffering isn't going to let up, that's when we tend to doubt Him. When we succumb to this temptation to turn inward on ourselves and become consumed with our own circumstances and with our own feelings, And so we take our focus off of His glory and off of His sovereignty and off of His holiness every single time we sin. So, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in this place where our flesh is tempted to say dreadful things about God and to doubt His love and to doubt His faithfulness and to doubt His goodness and justice and worthiness? Well, here's what we do. We do what the people did in verse 16 of Malachi chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They got together and said, we got to deal with this. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So what did these people do who feared the Lord? When the pressure was on, when the pain was overwhelming, when the disappointments were crushing, when the, when the temptation was pulling at them to turn in on themselves and become consumed with their own feelings and their own doubts, What did they do? They deliberately turned back out of themselves. First they turned to one another. And then together they turned to God. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. That's what they did. See, they didn't isolate themselves like like we can so often tend to do. They didn't turn inward and focus on feeling bad for themselves. They were hurting, but they weren't hiding. They knew that the thing they needed most in this world was community. Because that's how God designed us. God made us in His image. And by definition, by nature, God is a a, a relational God even before He created us, right? We saw that last week. God is the one, the one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Ever three and ever one. By nature, by definition, God exists as the one God in eternal, perpetual, holy relationship. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are communing together, communicating together, purposing together, working together. In a, in a divine, triune, sovereign, holy, harmonious choreography of, of sovereign will and, and work. And this God who is ever three and, and also ever one and always in community with Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, the one God let us make man in our image. And He created us to reflect His glory in this world. And one of the chief ways that we do that is in relationship, in in community with one another and with Him. 
That's why Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to assemble together, as is the habit of some. Don't do that, but but rather encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near of His coming. See, that's what the the God-fearing people in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16 did. In the darkest days, when hope seemed lost, when they couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when the temptation was to to give in to the voice of of their sort of self-idolizing flesh and begin to say dreadful things about God, doubting Him and denying Him and, and His love and faithfulness and goodness and worthiness and justice, instead of caving into that fleshly temptation, they got their eyes off of themselves, they came together, they spoke truth to one another about who our unchanging God really is. Praying together. Setting their minds and their souls on Him. And when they did that, verse 16 says that the Lord paid attention to them. He regarded them. And then He spoke back to them in verse 17. They shall be Mine. In the day when I make up My treasured possession, I will spare them. Because they're putting their trust in me. This is what we need to know when the chips are down, when the pressure's on, when the trials of our lives are the hardest. What we need to know is that by His great unconditional love, we are His. We belong to Him. We are His treasured possession. Don't forget that. I know you're suffering. I know you're struggling. I know it's hard. I know you can't see the light at the end of that tunnel sometimes. And it just seems like this life is unbearable. But you belong to God. You are His child. You are His son. You are His daughter. You are His prized possession. And He is good and faithful and just. And your inheritance will one day be eternal bliss and glory. And all of the sufferings of this world will be accounted as nothing. They'll seem to you in glory, they'll seem all, you'll look back on everything you've suffered and go, really was just a momentary light affliction compared to all of this. You need to know that you belong to God, and you need to know that He is good, and you need to know that He's your Father, and you need to know. That as your father, when he ordains hard things in your life, it's not because he hates you. It's not because he's condemning you. It's not because he's punishing you. It's because he's loving you, Hebrews 12 says, right? Whatever, whatever afflictions we suffer aren't a sign of God's neglect or unfaithfulness. They're a sign of his, his faithful fatherly care. Would we doubt God's love for us? Would we dare say when we're going through hard things, God must just be punishing me because He's not loving? Because He's not good? Because He's not faithful? God loves us so much that He purposes to refine us even when it takes fiery trials that purge away our sin and our unbelief like a like a fuller's soap, it says here in Malachi. Fuller was the one who washed the wool after the sheep were shorn, and the wool was disgusting and dirty and black with grime because sheep don't take showers. 
and so they stink and they're all oily. And they had to use this, this harsh, caustic lye boiled in hot water and then they'd, they'd boil that wool and then they'd take it and wring it and then they'd boil it again and wring it and boil it again and wring it. Do you ever feel like that's your life? I'm just getting boiled and wrung over and over and over. Yeah. You know why? I do because I need to be wrung out over and over and over until I'm pure. Until there's no more filth. Until every sin is conquered. Until glory, I'm perfect. And God loves me enough to keep wringing me out. So God tells these desperate, struggling people that they belong to Him. And then He writes it down for them in a book of remembrance. His living act of word. He records it so that they can go back to it. So that they can be comforted from it. So that they can be assured again and again and again when they face this temptation again and again and again. They can be assured of His love and His faithfulness and His justice and His goodness for generations to come. And we have that testimony They would need that for, for 400 long, dark years that, that would lie ahead of them. 400 years when the presence of God's glory would not be in that temple. 400 years when no prophet, Malachi was the last one before John the Baptist. 400 years. No prophet of God speaking or writing. God was silent. 400 years of living and dying and waiting for God to act and fulfill His plans and purposes and promises in bringing the Messiah. But He hadn't abandoned them, right? He hadn't forgotten. He hadn't neglected them. He wasn't unfaithful. He was accomplishing His good and sovereign purposes all along in His perfect time and by His perfect plan. And if I have a bad day, if I have a bad hour, if I have a bad minute, I go, really God, is this what? (laughs) The day would come. 400 years, but the day would come when justice would be served on the wicked. God, you're so unjust. God, you're so unfair. No, he's not. And the day will come. It may take 400 years, but the day will come. Chapter 4, verse 1. The day will come when justice will be served. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There would be nothing left. Peter talks about that day. When the judgment of Christ who will return will lay waste everything and dissolve it all so that there's not even a a root of it to spring back up any evil in the new heavens and the new earth. Only righteousness will do. And the day was coming, Malachi said, when the promises of great blessing would be fulfilled. I know it's shabby right now. I know it's tough right now. It's going to be for 400 more years. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You know what that is? That's Jesus Christ. That's salvation, the healing in his wings. 
And when that happens, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You know what that is? That's a new life in Christ. That's being buried with Him in baptism and raised up with Him to newness of life like we saw last time. So that we can go out leaping in new life in our souls like calves do when they're, when they're born. But for 400 years, they would have to wait. And in waiting, they would have to look away from themselves and resist the sinful, fleshly, prideful urge to doubt God's love and faithfulness and worthiness and justice and goodness. It's easy to trust God when He's giving you good stuff. It's easy to believe what we can see. And didn't Jesus say to Thomas, how blessed are those who who believe without seeing? How blessed are those who walk by faith, which is the assurance of things that are not seen? How blessed are those to whom God gives the grace to walk by faith while we wait, when we don't have the good things that we want? When it is hard, because we know that in those things God is not faithless, unjust, unloving, but always good and purposeful. Sometimes we have to wait to understand exactly why God's purposes are at work in our lives. What's He doing? But we do not have to wait for the Son of Righteousness to rise because He has. And in Him all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And we have been given already this glorious new life in Jesus Christ and made to be leaping like newborn calves in the stall. He has given us His only begotten Son and so we have no reason whatsoever to wonder if He will fail to give us all good things, if He's really loving, we, can't, we don't have any cause to wonder because the fullness of His unconditional love has already been shown towards us in Jesus. We don't have any cause to doubt if He's worthy because His glory has filled the temple of our lives like we saw last time from Paul's writings to the Corinthians. And it's spreading as it spreads life by life, temple by temple, living stone by living stone across the face of this earth as the, as the waters cover the sea. The glory of the Lord is shining all around this planet in a way that it never did before Jesus came. We don't have to wonder if He's worthy. We don't have to ask if He's faithful. Because in Jesus Christ, there is a new covenant in His blood by which we have been given eternal redemption and made to be His children, adopted heirs of of an eternal inheritance with Him and of Him in glory. What do you mean, is He faithful? Look what He's given you. We don't ever have to doubt His justice because, because look at the cross. Does God deal with sin? Yeah, He dealt with mine. You know how? On the cross where He satisfied it in full and paid the price for my sin in full. Is He loving? Yeah, same reason. 
because Jesus shed His blood for me. So what we need to do when life is hard, when the pain is excruciating, when it seems unending, and when we're tempted to doubt Him, is is to do what they did in Malachi, the fearers of the Lord. We need to come together. We need community, and we need to speak these truths to one another. We need to say, hey, I'm in the weeds here, and I'm tempted here, and I'm struggling here, and I, I need you to tell me truth here. I need you to point me to the glory of God. I need you to pray for me that I would see all of the truth that He has revealed and all that He has done. And I need to sing with you psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and give praise to my God. I need to worship because together in community and fellowship in Him and with Him, that's how we answer the question when life is hard, is it vain to serve God? The reality is that in our sin, if we turn in on ourselves, the answer to that question becomes actually unclear to us. Should be an obvious answer. Is it vain to serve God? If if you're having a good day, you're going to say, well, of course not. But if you're deep in sin, and you're in the weeds of pain and affliction, the answer becomes unclear. I'm not sure if I should trust Him right now. But together, as we worship Him and commune together with Him and speak truth to one another in love, the answer becomes much, much clearer, right? He is worthy of all of our worship. He is faithful. He is just. He is good. He is love. And I can trust Him. I don't have to take the reins. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. Because His faithfulness is great. His love is steadfast and unchanging and His mercies are new every morning. Amen? Let's be done and pray and then we'll sing Great is Thy Faithfulness to our God. Father, thank You for Your Word. And sometimes it is excruciatingly penetrating in our lives as that double-edged sword pierces us and exposes the sin that remains. But Father, how good it is then to turn from ourselves And to look to Christ, who paid it all, who suffered for us, who died for us, who loved us with this everlasting love, who buried us with Him in baptism and raised us up to newness of life and washed us and cleansed us that we might be forgiven and justified and adopted as Your children. Father, would You pull us up out of ourselves this morning? And would You fill us up with Christ? And Father, would you cause us to overflow with the joy of the Lord that is our strength as we sing your praises and come to your table and feast on your goodness and your grace. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.